Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, last week, Doug Ford called the Greenbelt a scam. Now, that's obviously not true. So will the Premier finally be honest and tell us what he really thinks and if anything at all is going to change? MP Michael Chong has made some good practical suggestions for combating foreign interference. Will the government actually implement some of them, though? And could teaching kids digital literacy and critical thinking skills actually help them better distinguish misinformation online? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. You may remember uh, this piece, because uh, we've played this lots over the last little while, I think just to bring home the message about uh, how the Ontario government is feeling about the Greenbelt. Uh, very controversial piece of legislation that the McGinney government put in some years ago. Uh, Doug Ford, of course, as we now know, uh, when he was running to be premier a few years ago, apparently had a private meeting with a lot of developers and said he was going to open up a big swath of that. He backtracked on that when that story finally broke in the Toronto Star. And uh, then upon question upon question over the last couple of years, really, uh, the premier stated basically that that he was going to leave the green belt all alone because that's what people wanted. Here's a little segment of what he had to say. Unequivocally, we won't touch the green belt. Uh, unlike other governments that don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear. People don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. We'll figure out uh, how to clean up this housing mess and this housing crisis that we're facing in a different fashion. But all my friends, I listen to you. You don't want me touching the green belt. We won't touch the green belt. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, that was then and this is now. Uh, more recently, of course, the Premier has uh, called the green belt the whole thing a scam. Uh, and said that it was nothing but a failed uh, policy from the Liberal government by gone years. Uh, our next guest writes about this uh, in his piece uh, on TVO.org. Uh, we're talking about Matt Gurney, of course, who was a columnist for TVO. And uh, the, the title is called Doug Ford Needs to Level with Ontarians About the Green Belt. Uh, Matt, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us again. Always nice to be here, Bill. Uh, that, that's the thing about being a public office right now. Those damn reporters record stuff, and you know, and they play it back and said, "What did you mean by that?" Uh, <laughs> but as you, he's he's switched around. I mean, this is a, a, a like a ninety degree turn here. Uh, what in your mind, in in your opinion, what, what what's happened here to make him change, or, would, or was he just tagging us along all along? Um, you know what, honestly, and this is going to sound like I'm, I'm, I'm being wishy-washy, but with Doug Ford, it's really hard to tell because yeah. one of the things I've been writing about Ford, um, since the, the very, you know, even honestly, I, you know, I don't mean to pat myself on the back here, but like before the premier was the premier, when he was running for the Ontario progressive conservative leadership, I wrote and I wrote it on Twitter, so it's kind of lost to the mist of history now. But I said I never trusted Doug Ford because he was too much of a weather vane. He would always go whichever the way the wind was blowing. And as my example, I talked about how uh, he had written a book uh, after his brother, the, uh, the former mayor of Toronto, had passed away. And Doug Ford had promised that his book would be butt kicking, it would be naming names, it would be uh, really settling scores. But his book actually was just incredibly like nice and mild and meek, and there was nothing there. And he was asked about it after, and he kind of said, "Well, yeah, I decided I didn't want to, you know, be mean to people, and my mom would be mad at me if I did." And I remember, like at the time, thinking, "Oh, okay, this tells us everything we need to know about Doug Ford." 
He's not a guy who can stand up to a fight. He will melt away from any source of conflict. So it's, Bill, like, it's really hard to ever try to get a sense on what Doug Ford actually thinks he should be doing as opposed to Doug Ford running away from whoever yelled at him last. And, and you know, I'm, I, 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 you, you mentioned that in the piece, and I, I totally agree with it, that he just seems to be that way. Uh, but you juxtapose that with, uh, well, uh, say a, a, pa- a couple of past uh, conservative leaders, uh, Mike Harris being one in Ontario, and, and even more recently, I guess, Stephen Harper, uh, who basically seemed to have the courage of their convictions. I mean, you, know, you, you may have disagreed with almost everything those two guys did, but you know where they stood on things, and, and, you know, and they said this is the way it's going to be. If you don't like it, too bad. Uh, Doug, does, he doesn't have that in his DNA, does he? No. And, you know, when you asked me a few minutes ago uh, about, like, what do I think he's actually trying to do here, it makes it really hard to try and tell. Now, I mean, I think, and as I wrote this in my column, all of the signs are pointing to the fact that the conservatives or Ford or some combination therein, they want to open the green belt for development. And as I wrote in my piece, they're trying to kind of nibble away at it without actually fundamentally changing it. Like they want to say, yeah, we're going to open up some land, but we're also adding land. And then Doug Ford is his typical, you know, because he loves making bombastic statements. Next thing you know, nobody cares about the environment as much as I do, folks. And, And then this week, and you've already picked up on this, you mentioned this in your opening comments, now he's saying that the green belt was a scam, that it never should have existed. So I think we're kind of getting a sense of where he wants to go on this one. The question, as far as I'm concerned, is whether or not he's actually going to be able to get there in the face of criticism. And that's not even getting into the fact that there's a lot of, um, as you well know, there's a lot of suspicion that there might have been a little nudge-nudge, wink-wink with some of the developers here. And to be clear, I don't know if that was Doug Ford, and I don't, I'm not trying to imply that it was. Like, I honestly don't know what was going on there. But either something something shady was going on, or a bunch of Ontario land developers just had unbelievable precognitive guesses about what plots of land to buy here. It doesn't mean Ford was involved, and I, I stress that, right? Like, you, you never know who might have leaked that kind of information. But whatever Doug Ford plans to do with the green belt, and even if he's going to try and have the courage of whatever his convictions are on this one, if this thing blows up into a general political scandal, all bets are off. There's another, I think, very, very cogent point here that you point out in the, in the piece in, in, on TVO.org. Uh, whatever he wants to do, he can do. He's he's the premier. He's got a huge majority government, and and no government, neither Doug Ford's or anybody else's, uh, either past or present, is duty bound to follow uh, you know policies from a previous government. They can blow up everything if they want, and if he wants to pave over the green belt starting tomorrow morning, uh, legally he's well within his rights to do that. Now, as you say, there's some other legal qualifications and questions that need to be asked about the process here, uh, but uh, he's pretty much paved the way. Excuse the bad pun there, Matt. Uh, because he's pretty much erased most of the the, the protocol that's in place uh, to appeal these environmental assessments, things like that. That's that stuff is is yesterday's news now, as far as this government's concerned. So uh, you're right; he's he's well within his rights legally to do that. But I don't know if he can stand the pressure. Yeah, I mean that's always honestly the the question with Doug Ford. Whether you said a minute ago, uh, kind of like how a guy like Mike Harris, uh, you always knew what you were getting, right? And it's still remarkable to me, Bill, even to this day, 
people who adamantly were opposed to Mike Harris, people who honestly hate his guts, will still go out of their way to give him the credit of, hey, he he was honest, right? Like he laid it out before us. With Doug Ford, even if he's being honest, there's just the issue of whether or not he has the guts to stand the heat in the kitchen here, which is what is like, which that's why, Bill, I mentioned in the column that like he actually has the authority to do this. Like in a weird way, I kind of feel like maybe the premier needs to be reminded of that every now and then. He has an 83 seat supermajority in the legislature. He's got three years, a little bit more than that left in his mandate here. He is probably the most popular conservative politician in this country, maybe only behind uh, Francois Legault, the premier of Quebec. He actually has political capital to spend on this. And I like the green belt. I don't think we should be paving over the green belt, but he has in the housing crisis an excuse to do what he wants here. He just has to choose to do it and then stick with it. And as always with Doug Ford, I guess we'll find out if he does. And I know that, you know, there's a little parsing with wording going on here, too. You know, as you mentioned in the piece, it's, he's prone to hyperbole, of course. It's a scam. Well, no, it's not a scam. That's ridiculous. That's the wrong word, even if he's trying to, you know, denigrate the whole process. Uh, and it did have value. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, the stated purpose of this was to try to curb the uh, the urban sprawl that, that was going on at the time of the GTA and, and other major cities. Uh, and and to protect some of the environmentally sensitive lands. And, and it, to that point, it was effective. But like any piece of legislation, every now and then there's a review. And, and, and Ford's right, there have been a lot of changes to it over the years. But those changes all went through a process of environmental assessment. Maybe this is not so sensitive. Maybe we can do this and put this in there. Uh, it's, it's a living piece of legislation. But I mean, he's going to take that now and say, see, they were, they were waffling on it, so I can do it too. But there was a purpose to it. And, and to a a certain extent, uh, it served that purpose. Uh, whether or not he wants to continue that purpose, I guess, is really the question here, isn't it? Yeah, it's the question. But I mean, as as we know with this guy, like the the clearer and the easier the question, the less likely he is to comment on it because that would mean taking a clearer position, and he's not really into doing that. Um, I think you know, as I mentioned in my column, here here's the reality for for Doug Ford, and honestly, here's the reality for all of us in, in the GTA, whether Toronto where I am or out more Hamilton way where you are. We are in a housing crisis here, and yeah. I think um, our our liberal friends and colleagues need to accept their share of the blame on this one. They they only did half the job. They created the green belt to limit low density sprawl. But then they never did the hard work of actually enabling the medium density construction in other areas that would be required to offset that. So they kind of they did the easy part, declared mission accomplished, and then didn't actually do the hard part. That's not entirely to blame for the housing crisis. And I don't want to exaggerate it and say that that's the case, but it certainly contributed to it. I was saying yesterday, Bill. This is a lesson to mean you got to fix your problems. And the Ontario Liberals had 15 years in office and they could have fixed this problem and they didn't. And if you don't fix your problems, somebody else is going to come along and fix them for you. And you might not like the way they do it. So when I hear liberals criticizing the premier for what he's planning to do, apparently with the green belt, I get it. And I think even in the, in the most part, I agree with it. But this is just a reminder, guys, if they had done their job properly 15 years ago, we wouldn't be talking about this today. 
Well, I'm I'm going to point a finger at somebody else too, and you do touch on this is municipal governments too. They have a role to play here, uh, because ultimately a lot of the planning that goes into communities is done at the municipal level, and they have done a crappy job. And I'm talking about Hamilton, Oakville, Burlington, Toronto. Go down the list here, uh, of of trying to do those sorts of things about infill developments, about as you say, uh, medium density houses. Because every time somebody would propose something like that, and I was on council for nine years, I know what it's like. Somebody would call up and say, you know what, I voted for you last time, and if you do that, you're never going to get my vote again. And Okay, well, well, okay, we won't do it then. We won't, uh, don't worry, okay. Uh, because let's face it, as we all know with elected officials, uh, job one, the day they take office and take the oath, is to get reelected. And, and they'll pretty much do whatever they can to make that happen. So it's a failure on everybody's part at this stage. But you're right, the ultimate is is the provincial government. They're the ones that are supposed to oversee what's happening with municipalities. And, and again... I don't like a lot of what Ford's done when it comes to taking power away from local governments, uh, but it's because they weren't doing their job. And and maybe this is an overreaction to it, but you're you're right. I mean, nothing happens in a vacuum. It's happening because nothing was doing. No, no, nobody was getting this right for the last twenty years. No, I think that's bang on. And I like I'm with you. Like in theory, like if you and I were to sketch out our policy one hundred and one papers about <laughs> this. I think you and I would both say that the provincial government should stay out of the realms of the cities here. Like, that's that's pretty basic stuff here. But the greatest argument in favor of provincial interference in municipal affairs is just any review of the recent history of any of these municipal governments here. It should have been obvious. And I think, honestly, Bill, it was obvious to anyone who was really paying attention that the municipalities were so captured by their local NIMBYs that they were incapable. And I don't mean unwilling. I mean functionally incapable of being effective property developers here. There was just no chance it was going to happen. You and I could have seen that 10, 20 years ago. I think, honestly, the liberals probably did, but it would have been bad politics to override them, so they didn't. You know, it takes a long, long time to actually create the kind of housing crisis we have right now. It, it is a multi-partisan, multi-decade, multi-jurisdictional failure. It took us a long time to get here. But what really worries me is that I think it might take us even longer to get out of here. Well, especially because, it, as you know, as you point out in the, in the article on TVO.org, uh, I don't think the government's got a policy on this yet. I think, you know, this kind of doing this on the back of an envelope and it does switch from day to day right now. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, you know, if you would ask me outright, is he, is he going to just say, okay, to hell with the green belt, you guys can build wherever you want. He might, but I don't, I, I don't know. I don't think he knows at this point that he really. Yeah. I mean, well, I think my gut feeling is that we actually saw a little bit of a hint of where he's, his thoughts are uh, this week, because uh, at this press conference a few days ago at a transit announcement, he was asked about the Greenbelt development. Yeah. And he said, guys, I'm never going to pave over marshes. I'm never going to pave over wetlands. And to me, I thought, aha, that is an emerging talking point. Like we're seeing this. It's like a nature film. Like we've all witnessed a talking point being born in the wild. I think that's how they're going to start redefining the Greenbelt. Well, of course, we'd never pave over marshes and wetlands. I think they're going to redefine it into something more narrowly defined for environmental reasons and sort of abandon the uh, anti-sprawl aspects of it. That's a guess of where I think they're going, and God knows whether or not they actually have the courage to see it through. But that's what I think we were starting to see this week. Yeah, pretty much, and that, it, you're right. There seems to be a, a pattern developing there. And it, it, you know, for people that support the green belt, and I think that's actually the majority of people in Ontario now. Uh, 
they may be disappointed by that, but this is probably going to be death by a thousand cuts. They're not going to just say, okay, it's open season on it, but you know, bit by bit, you know, this development, then one over here and then one over here. And, and you're going to see a pattern developing there, but uh, it's, it's just fascinating to watch the, the way he's, he's kind of spinning on this right now. Uh, and, and, and as you mentioned, I mean, we can't even give a definitive answer on this right now because there, there will be an official investigation about who knew what and who donated to what and who went to the stag and all this other stuff. And that, that's all interrelated and uh, could have an impact on the way they go on this. Uh, I'll direct our listeners to, to, the, to the webpage if you want to read this in its entirety, tvo.org slash uh, article, Doug Ford Needs to Level with Ontarians. Uh, great piece, insightful as always. Matt, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Bill. You have a great long weekend. You too. Take care. Matt Gurney, of course, who's a columnist with uh, TVO.org. Uh, and always uh, some great stuff about what's going on in municipal and provincial politics. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I also recommend that CSIS informs the speaker of the identity of any persons in Canada involved in foreign interference threat activities targeting MPs and their families so that the speaker can inform all members of the House of Commons that's uh, Member of Parliament uh, Michael Chong, of course. He was testifying before the Parliamentary Committee that's uh, looking into uh, foreign interference, uh, and, and with good reason, as we found out later on, of course, that he was the target of, uh, of uh, some retaliations in some way, shape, or form. And actually, uh, his family was being threatened uh, by Chinese officials, and this was all because of, uh, of Mr. Chong's uh, support for, uh, of course, the, the condemnation of the Chinese government for human rights violations. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. Uh, and, and the more we find out about what's going on with foreign interference, the more troubling it is. And the, the storyline and the common thread about most of the stuff we've learned so far uh, is this just there doesn't seem to be any communication, uh, you know, between intelligence agencies and the government, between the prime minister's office and, and, and on and on it goes. Uh, to talk about this, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program. Charles Burton, who is a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Charles, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. It's good to speak with you, Bill. Where do we begin here? I mean, this is awfully troubling. Uh, there's deny, 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 of course, from the government. We never saw these documents. Mr. Chong said, as you saw from the testimony yesterday, he actually had a number of meetings with the CISA's officials because he was concerned about this, and they didn't even tell him that he was being targeted at the time. I mean, what, what's going on here? What's not going on, I guess, more to the point? I think, I mean, I, I think the government, including the Prime Minister and the Minister of Public Security, whether they saw the documents, you know, whether they were put on their desk, whether they read them or not, they're still responsible for what goes on in their ministries. In the case of the Prime Minister, the Privy Council Office, and, you know, in the case of the Ministry of Public Security, the RCMP. So, you know, they should be taking responsibility. And certainly in an earlier age, not that long ago, under, say, Prime Minister Mulroney, uh, the ministers would resign if their if their subordinates had engaged in activities which really fell very short of the mark. So I'm not so sure I can blame uh, CSIS for this. It seems that, according to Jody Thomas, the prime minister's national security advisor, uh, who very bravely contradicted the prime minister and minister Mendicino with regard to the status of those thesis reports by saying that they were in fact sent out to the 17 different points of national security that Mr. Chong identified in his evidence, that um, 
that, uh, you know, they, they simply provide the information, but they don't action it. And the responsibility for not doing anything really falls with the political sector. So you can't really throw CSIS under the bus for this. But that being said, I, I think that there could have been briefings uh, of the MPs that were subject to Chinese harassment in a more timely fashion by CSIS off the record privately, uh, you know, in lieu of the political sector responding. And uh, and I, I do think that we need CSIS to be much more forthcoming about what they know. As Mr. Chong said in his evidence, you know, other countries like Britain and the United States and Australia have um, heads of their CSIS equivalents much more forthcoming on the specifics of wrongdoing by uh, hostile foreign actors. So, you know, naming names and and uh, and that kind of thing. So, you know, we really need a, a major shakeup of everything. And frankly, you know, I really don't know how we can outroot, uproot the, the amount of Chinese penetration of our political elite of all the parties. It 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 really is a, a something that requires a lot of uh, of reset and a lot of people being removed from their posts and sent to work elsewhere. And and that's an important point here too. I mean, you know, the liberal government, of course, is, is as you say responsible. They're the ones who are governing. They're the ones who are in charge of these uh, different departments. Uh, but as we're finding out, uh, some conservative MPs were also involved in this in some way, shape, or form too. Uh, so it, it covers you know and crosses party lines in situations like this. So the the, the fact that this information was being gathered over a period of time, uh, and somebody somewhere decided that it was not worthy of of, of going to the individuals who might be named. I, even yesterday, after Mr. Chong's testimony in front of the committee, uh, where they decided, yeah, it'd be a good idea for uh, CSIS to talk to anybody uh, whose names have come up in some of this stuff, and they said they wanted to get a hold of Aaron O'Toole. Uh, do, do we extrapolate from that, Charles, that, that that somebody was threatening him too and nobody found out about it or nobody told anybody about it? It's it just it, too many questions here and not really enough answers at this stage. Yeah, I think we want those answers. We want to know, you know, Canadian people want to know what's going on and what's going to be done about it. And, you know, we're not seeing that yet. The government is still highly resistant. They're moving very slowly and in distressingly, um, you know, counter ways with regard to this foreign influence registry business. And, uh, you know, the Indo-Pacific strategy seems to be going nowhere either. So, you know, when one does wonder if you know the prime minister will prorogue parliament and do a reset and and hope that the china issue will fall off the agenda and then there is the question as you say if it involves um all parties which you know i think it pretty clearly does if we have a change in government will the next government actually do what needs to be done and get this chinese money and influence out of our system get the agents of the chinese communist party operating out of Chinese consulates and and the embassy um, back to Beijing and bring the agents of the Chinese regime who are involved in this kind of menace and harassing activities uh, before a Canadian court of law. You know, that's what we really need to see. But, you know, the story of this whole thing with Sam Cooper of Global News's revelations and Bob Fife and Steve Chase of the Globe and Mail is report after report after report alleging very serious malfeasance by agents of the Chinese state in Canada, which seem to be consistently thrown into the back of a drawer and ignored. And I think the bottom line for this is that, you know, Canadian politicians and senior civil servants wonder what they'll be doing when they leave positions of public trust. 
And if they are identified as being unfriendly to China, there are a lot of law firm, board of directors, think tank opportunities, which will not be available to them. You know, you won't see a lot of things coming out for Aaron O'Toole or Michael Chong after they leave politics because so much of of these uh, associations are subject to leverage by Chinese money, you know, law firms that work for the Chinese government and so on. You know, we know about Mr. Charest's, um retainer by the Huawei company, for example. Mm-hmm. These these things are very perversive and, and I think there is a sort of understanding on the part of politicians and civil servants to leave the China issue to their successors because, uh, you know, it could affect them personally if they're seen as, as uh, being too aggressive in trying to deal with this situation. Why, though, has this government, and I'm talking this particular liberal government anyway, uh, been so soft when it comes to issues like this? I mean, even even the arrest in Vancouver, the Huawei arrest, and, and of course, the subsequent uh, you know illegal captivation of the two Michaels in China, uh, they don't seem to recognize, or don't seem to want to recognize publicly uh, that this, these are nefarious details. This is a government that doesn't really like us, doesn't like the United States, doesn't like NATO, uh, and, and it will do everything they can to try to poke us, and, and we we just don't seem to want to do much about it now. Even the Prime Minister's comments about you know the foreign registry concept, uh, which the UK and America have already put into place, uh, he said that has racist overtones. Well, that, that's a total misrepresentation of what that whole thing was all about, yet that was the first thing that he said. It, it really has to... I guess, raises questions about their attitude towards China. Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, you know, the bottom line is that when the Australian um, Act came into effect, the people who resigned their lucrative Chinese associations were not Chinese. They were, you know, um, mainstream white people of European background who had been serving in the Australian government. And when the Australian legislation came into effect in 2018, there was no upsurge of anti-Chinese racism. In fact, you know, like it is here in Canada, the Chinese community supports this idea of trying to um, prevent Chinese money from entering into our policy process. So, you know, that is all nonsense. But, you know, it gets to the point where you're really thinking that that has the government been so irresponsible that it veers into the area of um, of uh, illegal activities. You know, could we be seeing um, distinguished Canadians actually coming up before a court of law and possibly subject to prison time because of their um, uh, acting on behalf of a foreign regime in, in receipt of benefits? I mean, that kind of issue actually sort of exists because how else do you explain um, what has been happening over these years with all of these CSIS recommendations that have now been leaked by presumably by people of good conscience who felt that they couldn't keep it secret any longer and uh, and the utter lack of response. I mean, even the, the Winnipeg Labs affair, you know, completely mysterious. Why did we let those two scientists simply return to, to China unable to, you know, not accounting for... Uh, what apparently was serious wrongdoing because they were marched out of that lab under police uh, police monitoring and 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 then nothing happened you know what 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 is it about there what about these other issues of chinese spies that that uh, the cases have had to be dropped because uh, the government delayed so long that that the court said that uh, that, that that they won't uh, that they won't uh, prosecute you know there's just so exactly. many so many so many questions in all sorts of aspects 
Uh, yeah, exactly. And and just what well, was over two years ago, both the the lab in in Manitoba, and they're just now getting around to saying, yeah, we should look into that. Uh, Charles, as always, great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. Great to speak with you, Bill. Look forward to doing some more of it. Hopefully, on a happier topic, though. <laughs> I'd like that too. Take care now. Have a great <laughs> holiday care. weekend, Charles. Charles Burton from the uh, McDonald Laurier Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You can see anything on the internet right now. People spend much, much more time on uh, social media, on other sites, of of course. And uh, that's the good news is because it's a huge, huge source of information. The bad news is uh, there's a lot of crap on there, okay? A lot of disinformation, misinformation, people immediately uh, trying to, to... in uninform or disinform uh, the public. And we've seen how that can really have an impact on populations. How do you battle that? Well, you teach them not to. You teach them about critical thinking. And uh, and maybe maybe adults don't want to go down through that course, but there's a fascinating uh, course that's available right now uh, for young people uh, that can, they, they can study about misinformation and, and, and how to deal with it. And it's all about critical thinking and evaluation. Uh, but yeah, which sounds, oh, that's going to be boring. Not the way these people are presenting it. Uh, to talk about this, uh, please to welcome back to the co- program, uh, Tim Caulfield. Uh, Tim is a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy and a professor in the Faculty of Law and School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. Uh, Tim, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for this today. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk a little bit about the, about this program uh, that uh, that you've been involved with and reporting on. It's called Reporting One Hundred and One Misinformation, and uh, it's it's a, a kind of a novel way, I guess, to teach kids about critical thinking, isn't it? Uh, th- that's right. And you know, as you pointed out in the intro, so so important to do this. Misinformation really is, you know, it's a generational challenge. It's one of the greatest challenges of our time. I know that sounds like hyperbole, but it's it's true. And the way we're going to solve it long term, right, is is to teach critical thinking skills to kids. And, and some countries like Finland, some of the other Scandinavian countries, they start this bill in kindergarten and it works. You know, it works. So we're starting to see more countries around the world, including Canada, recognizing how important teaching critical thinking skills is. Uh, and and we almost can't start early enough. And, and so this program is designed to do Exactly that. And by the way, in, in the intro, you said maybe adults shouldn't do it. I think adults should do it. <laughs> we should be teaching. <laughs> I think everybody should do it across the life course. Yeah, but you know, I, I've heard the same excuse as I'm sure you have, Tim. It's uh, old dogs, new tricks. Now, the, you know, it is what it is. And I'm I'm old enough, and I'm mature enough, and smart enough that I can figure disinformation from from <laughs> from real facts and figures, uh, which is a falsehood, of course. We all know that. I mean, people tend to gravitate to websites and pages where they, they, their views are substantiated, where they don't really want to learn. Uh, but young minds are are are, are malleable and and open minded about stuff like this. How how what kind of an uptake are you getting from the program? Well, there's I think, look, there's tons there's tons of interest in this program. No, no doubt about it. And, and uh, we, our own program, we have another one called hashtag science up first, which is really for, um, you know, for everyone. It's a social media platform. And then at the University of Alberta here. We actually do have a program on critical thinking that is, you know, more for uh, young adults and adults. And it also has had a, a lot of tough uh, uptake. So, you know, I, I think the the interest is there, Bill, and and people recognize how important this is. And there have been other studies that have been done around the world, and this is good news, uh, that show it really does work. It really does 
make a difference. And, you know, it, I, as you pointed out in the intro, oh, it sounds boring. It sounds like more science. No, thanks. No, it's really about very basic skills and you can teach them in an engaging way. In Scandinavia, for example, they they try to teach kids to be detectives. Right. So we're talking kindergarten kids. And then in this program, what they're doing is they're using, um, you know, video games and Minecraft and, and allowing the kids to kind of go on this journey to to fact check and to, to get a sense of where rumors might start, et cetera. So, yeah, we can do this in a creative way that still has an impact. And which is such a key part of this. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm from that generation way back when, where I thought, oh, science is boring. Well, then along comes like Bill Nye. Uh, and and there have been others. I mean, Bill, you know, maybe the most famous of them. But that's no, you can do this in a fun way that's engaging with with young people. And then all of a sudden, it's not learning. It's 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 an, an activity that they really like to to partake in. And I, I'm getting the sense that's what this program's to is doing. Yeah, you're exactly right. I always like to say creativity wins, right? Yeah. And and I think it's important to highlight that I know you know this that the people pushing misinformation. They make it engaging, right? They make sure. it, uh, you know, they make it like clickbait. Uh, they make it sound scary. Uh, they make, you know, that plays to your emotions. And and so we have to use creative tools to, to counter that. And I, and I think it's important to highlight, you know, how much misinformation is out there. They did a study uh, on TikTok and, and found that 20% of the content that's pushed by TikTok has some degree of misinformation. And that's huge. You know, 2 billion people are on TikTok mostly the younger demographic right two billion mostly the younger demographic and for some topics bill it's as much as 50 percent of the content so these skills so important how do you how do you engage in the first place how do you get them involved in this how do you uh, to lead them into this to you know you can't sit there and say okay kids we're going to do something that's going to be really really important to you uh but but i've seen some of the comments from the uh, the piece that was on cbc webpage about this uh, tim and and they're they're buying into this they're having fun and but at the same time they understand that they're, they're learning about critical thinking and they're i think pretty proud of themselves that they've progressed to the point that they have you know, I, I this is anecdotal evidence, but I've had the opportunity to speak to, you know, school groups on this topic. And the thirst is there. The interest is there. You know, the, the students and the kids, they recognize that this this is a problem. Right. Uh, so I, I don't think there's going to be a huge amount of hesitancy, um, especially if, you know, you you involve them in, in the process and 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 let them, you know, do something that they're interested in. So I, I don't think there's going to, the, the uptake isn't going to be a problem. I, I would like to see teaching critical thinking as standard in elementary school and junior high and high school and in university and later in, in life. Uh, you know, we need to have these skills available. And, and a part also, Bill, it's important to re remember that the problem is evolving. And now we have AI and chat GPT that's making uh, the misinformation even more difficult to spot. So the the lessons have to evolve too. Uh, and they have, and I mean, that's all part of, a, I think, of a, a mindset a lot of us have right now that, that education needs to be uh, pragmatic and practical at the same time. It's not just, you know, okay, I'm going to memorize that and that's going to be in my head. I know mathematical equations, uh, but, you know, I don't know how to do my taxes, that sort of thing. And and I, here's a quote here from, uh, from the piece that I think probably exemplifies that. Uh, and it's, it's from a grade eight student from Hamilton, as a matter of fact, it says, I don't think younger kids really know the difference between misinformation, disinformation, and true news. These are things that people are saying that you don't really know what that people can actually have hidden agendas or misinterpret things. This is a grade eight student. I think this kind of characterizes 
a lot of times, Tim, that we don't give young people enough credit for being as intuitive and insightful as they are. They know that there's a problem and they know that they can be exposed to this sort of stuff. And there seems to be an eagerness now to say, well, I, I want to be able to tell one from another. I have to be discerning about this. How do I do this? And they, they, they're, they're, there's a, an appetite here for this, I think. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I love that quote, too, by the way. You know, I saw that. I said, you know, yeah, this, you know, nail hammer <laughs> perfect yeah uh it's it, it, it that the student is exactly right and and there's evidence to back up the the intuition that this this student has you know that that people often aren't great at discerning the the truth from misinformation especially bill if it plays to preconceived notions as you as mm -hmm. you noted earlier you know if it if it's something that you already believe in you know you're more likely to accept it sort of uncritically so there are all these kind of uh of tools that you can give students not just not just to fact check but to kind of fact check yourself too right am i am i being fooled because this is playing to you know uh my confirmation biases right so uh the all those skills matter and of course you want to tailor the course depending on the students so with with younger kids it's you know teaching them to be detectives and and with older kids you want to teach them uh maybe what different kinds of evidence is like you know anecdote versus the body of evidence and then you know onward as as the critical thinking skills evolve. But holy cow, this has become such an important topic. Well, and, and as you say, as, as they get older and as they progress through this, I mean, it's, it's like giving them a, a checklist, isn't it? Uh, you know, here's, here's a piece of information. Uh, you know, is it legitimate or not? Well, these are the questions you need to ask yourself, and that those, as you say, those are those are things that I, I wish more adults would would employ when they're reading a lot of stuff on the internet right now. But it, it gives them that tool, doesn't it, but to be able to make those determinations? Uh, no, that box, I can't check that box. Can't check that box. It's, it's probably phony. Yeah, that's right. And so they've done research in Finland to show that these courses. They work. There was a study that was done in Uganda with 11-year-olds uh, to teach them very basic critical thinking skills about health, you know, health misinformation. Uh, the students re learned it and they were able to apply it and, and the skills endured. Uh, so, you know, teaching these very basic skills can make a difference. And, and, it, and Bill, sometimes it's just as simple as telling people to remember, pause and ask yourself, what kind of evidence is, is being used here? Ask yourself, is this person have something to sell, whether it's a product or an agenda, right? Uh, and, you know, ask yourself, is there any reason that I might be fooled by, by this information? E even doing that. And there's also really interesting research that suggests just that process, right? Just pausing for a moment and thinking about accuracy can make a difference because a lot of the misinformation works in the moment, right? It plays to our emotions. So if you can just pause, you know, take that beat, our information environment's frenetic, right? Take that beat. Just doing that can make a difference. But you made an interesting point uh, in, in the piece that, that I was referencing. Uh, you're not teaching kids to be skeptical. You're teaching them to be insightful and, and to question. Uh, in other words, don't make up your mind about it until you've gone through this process. That's right. And I think that's super important for a number of reasons because Look, you know, te teaching about misinformation, you can see how this could be politicized, you know, think about what's going on in the United States. And, sure. Uh, maybe some policymakers will say, oh, you're just trying to brainwash my kids. No, what you're trying to do is is teach them um, skills, right? Content neutral, right? 
but the mm-hmm. skills to discern what's real. So I think that take that you know takes a little bit of the the political uh, sting out of it by saying we're just teaching skills. And the other thing that you know that you highlight is we're not t- teaching them to be cynical. <laughs> you know, on the contrary, you know, we're trying to teach people to be excited about the world and to investigate it and and to have the skills to know what the good evidence actually says. Yeah, I mean, you know, oftentimes uh, misinformation can be partly true. What, what's that old st- class, I guess, is it, Tim, that, you know, the, the best lies are ones that have just a little bit of truth in them. Uh, so you can kind of, you know, hook onto them and say, yeah, that, that sounds practical, probably is true then. Uh, but, you know, taking that other approach to it to say, well, okay, where's the proof for that now? You know, if, if that soft drink there company says, no, there's no sugar in this, it's actually healthy for you. Mm-hmm. Really? Well, read the ingredients and talk about some of the products, et cetera. In other words, ask the next question. Uh, which which is something we don't often do, uh, even as adults. Uh, I don't know if it's because we're lazy. Or we just, as you say, oftentimes just gravitate to what we want to read and hear and, and believe. Uh, but th- this is a different tact, and it's a much better tact. I think the analogy you used in the piece here is you want them to start acting like scientists, not like cynics. That's right. And the point you make about a little bit of truth is actually evidence to back that up, Bill. There's been studies that have shown the most effective or uh, unfortunately, <laughs> the most effective kind of misinformation uh, often has a little bit of truth, right? So people will go, oh, yeah, I, I know that's true. And it'll be a narrative. So a story, an anecdote that plays to their their beliefs. Uh, and perhaps it's a little bit scary. Those are the kind of elements that will make misinformation go viral, will, will make it more you know, sticky. And so even, even recognizing that those are the elements of misinformation, it's kind of what often called pre-bunking, right? You might see misinformation that has these characteristics can be really effective, right? Can be really effective. So yeah, and we don't want them to be cynics. We want them to be, you know, detectives and scientists and, and be curious. And those skills, I think, are lifelong. How, how do you engage uh, students and how do you get engage, for instance, school boards uh, to, to adopt these sorts of programs and, and, and start using them on every day? Because this is, you know, we can talk about th- this whole mindset, Tim, when it comes to, you know, our time on the internet or social media sites, whatever the case might be. Uh, but the skills that you're, you're teaching here and that the students are starting to incorporate uh, can be used for just about any facet of life and, and any facet of their education. That's right. I mean, just think about the marketing space, right? As, you, yeah. know, you kind of touched on it earlier. Um, uh, there's so many aspects of life where, where this will be relevant. You know, people, you know, fraud, you know, people trying to trick you on on the internet. I mean, there's so many examples of, of, of ways that this kind, these kinds of skills are going to be relevant and ever more so in the future, right? Ever more so. So, yeah, look, I uh, hey, we're having this conversation. Maybe there's school boards out there who are listening. Uh, we've got to get the word out. Um, you know, our our team has tried to engage with politicians uh, at at various levels, and and we have wonderful partners uh, for some of our projects uh, around Canada. So, you know, I'm hopeful the ball's rolling here, Bill, and I'm hoping that that in the future more and more people will be involved. Well, I think it's a fabulous idea, and I congratulate you and everybody else who's involved in this uh, because I think it's it's putting us on, and especially younger people, in the right direction. And I just we'll wrap this up the same way we began it. I think it's, this is not just for kids. I think everybody uh, needs to, to, as you say, pause for a second and, and do a little bit of critical thinking before we simply accept uh, anything that we read or any uh, web page that we're on these days. Tim, great stuff on this. Thank you for spending some time with us today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Tim Caulfield, who was, of course, with the uh, Public Health at University of Alberta and uh, at law school and a number of different initiatives. And it's all about learning. And and we fall into that. Adults do this all the time. You know, we don't think. We don't analyze. We don't ask that next question. 
you know, you go to a web page and it says, hey, you know, click on this this page right here. Click on this site here, and we could you could win one thousand dollars. Well, that's pretty intriguing. But there's a little voice in the back of your head that says, wait, no, no, I, I shouldn't really be doing that. I don't know what I'm going to get into. Uh, and you know, there are some horror stories that we've learned, or or somebody calls you and says, yeah, this is your bank calling, and we're just going to check in some information. Can give us your account number just so we can verify this? And people fall for it instead of asking the next question. Wait a minute. The banks don't call and ask for that sort of thing. You know, ask that next question. And if you if you get young people at, at an early age asking those questions and and being analytical, uh, it's I think they'd save an awful lot of grief for an awful lot of people if they do it. So, uh, good luck to to Tim and to everyone else who's employing these these uh, critical thinking programs for uh, students at this stage. Anyway, the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.